Welcome to the latest episode of Star Cells and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I'm joined today in studio by Jeff Zwierink, who is a a Christian apologist and an astrophysicist. We both work for an organization called Reasons to Believe. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, go to our website, www.reasons.org, or you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. Also, go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe, and subscribe, and then also hit the, the notification button, the little bell, that will send you a reminder when the next episode of Star, Cells, and God drops, which typically is on Thursday. Uh, today, we're going to talk about two discoveries that have, again, implications for the Christian faith. Jeff is going to be talking about water on Mars, and I'm going to be talking about polar bear, brown bear hybridizations. So with that, <laughs> I think Jeff, take I think it away. I think your discussion might be more interesting. No, I... <laughs> So I was uh, I've just been fascinated with Mars. It's uh, you know one of these bodies in the solar system that you look at the history of how people have talked about it, going back even to Galileo Kepler mm -hmm. before we had telescopes where we can see uh, the surface. And there's just this pervasive idea that clearly there's going to be life out there on Mars. And right. uh, even when we started being able to find pictures, we could see kind of streaks and lines and people thought, oh, these are canals and streets. And so there's this just prevailing idea that there's got to be life out there and Mars is the place where it was. And one of the things that we have found as our technologies increase is that Mars is a pretty hostile place to life. I mean, if you look at the first picture I have up here, this is a, a the inst one of the instruments that has generated some of the data I'm going to talk about. But if you look around, it's just this rusty, dry, barren, looks like a desert. I mean, just this past weekend, I drove across the country to, to get my car from uh, a state where I ran into a deer and it needed to get repaired. But as I was driving across the country, I mean, there are places where there's just spectacular forests and trees and rain. And then there's a lot of places where it's just dry and barren. You wonder how anything grows out there. Well, that's what Mars is mm -hmm. everywhere. Uh, just as an example of how hostile Mars is to life, we have people that go out and climb Mount Everest. That is the pinnacle of how, how can you climb here on Earth, or, or at least how high. It's not the hardest, but how high can you climb? Well, once you get up above a certain level, it's somewhere in the vicinity of 28,000 feet, there's actually not enough oxygen in the atmosphere for humans to survive. And so you're slowly dying while you're up there. You get up to the top of Mount Everest, I think it's a little over 29,000 feet. And like I said, if you just stay up there, you're going to die. Go to Mars. The atmosphere on Mars is 50 times smaller than the top of Mount Everest. So it's just, and, and even at that, there's no oxygen in it and no water to speak right. of. So it's pretty hostile and barren life, or barren to life. But as we look, we find evidence that there seemed to be an abundance of liquid water. You know, the next image there will show, uh, you know, these are some of the images, you know, the one on the life or on the left there, you see kind of 25 kilometer scale and you see mm. these big round impact basins, but it looks like just these 
channels and valleys that have been carved out by rivers on the right there. Uh, as you come in from the left, you can see a big river delta. And so mm. it really does look like water was flowing on Mars. It produced a lot of geological features. And kind of the idea is where there's water, there's life. And so this is the, I, mm -hmm. the interesting part of Mars. Though, yes, it's very barren and desolate today. Maybe in the past it was more habitable. And what this the instrument uh, MAVEN uh, was looking to measure is what can we tell about how the volatiles in the atmosphere of Mars are behaving? In particular, mm -hmm. can we tell how much is it losing its water, how much is it losing carbon dioxide? Because when you ask the question, how could Mars have had liquid water, well, it would need a much more dense atmosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, most of its atmosphere is carbon dioxide, but it's, like I said, it's got a very minimal atmosphere. And so you need something, you know, a few times sea level atmospheric pressure on Earth, uh, which is, you know, if one bar is that or one atmosphere, it's got a whole bunch of different, depending on which units you want to have, it has different numbers. But in uh, bars, it's one. So on Mars, you need about three to five bars, something like that. So the question is, where did all that carbon dioxide go mm -hmm. that provided the atmosphere that would allow it? And we know that there had to be an abundance of water flowing around mm -hmm. on the surface. So the question is, where did all the water go? And so they were looking at chemical isotopes of carbon and hydrogen and deuterium and uh, I'm missing one, oxygen in there. Because what will happen on Mars is the solar wind will come, it'll blow some of it away. Mars has got a, a light or a it's a smaller mass, mm -hmm. so lighter molecules can can dissipate into space than here on Earth. But also you've got UV radiation that will break up mm -hmm. oxygen or the water and the carbon dioxide into its uh, component elements, and those will get uh, sprayed off into space. And so you can look at the isotopes of like carbon-12 to carbon-13. Because carbon-13 is heavier, it will do that more slowly. Mm -hmm. And there's same, similar isotopes for oxygen and hydrogen and, and these other elements that allow you to determine how much has been uh, dissipated. And what we have found is that uh, as of right now, based on these MAVEN measurements, that Mars is losing about two to three kilograms per second of atmosphere. Now, it doesn't sound you know, hard, hard to put that into quantity, so I calculated out that if that's all water, and, it, and it's not all water, but if that were all water, that's about 27,000 gallons of water a day that is lost mm. from the Martian atmosphere. Uh, for scale, Earth loses about one-fourth of that in water every day, uh, but Earth is drenched with water. So the fact that the Earth is losing that little amount of water compared to Mars is really kind of a pretty good sized statement there. Um, you want to know what 27,000 gallons is? It's about an Olympic-sized pool every two weeks is what mm. uh, that, that, that amount of mass, if it were all water, is about what Mars is losing. And so people can now ask the question, well, we know how much it's losing today. What might have gone on in the history and is it possible, or how do we explain the fact that given the barrenness of Mars, that it has liquid water in the past? And, you know, part, you know, adding to that challenge is that Mars today is about 50 degrees below, below the freezing point of water. 
Uh, and believe it or not, it kind of doesn't matter whether you're talking about Celsius or Kelvin there because yeah. minus 40 is the same for both – or sorry, Celsius or Fahrenheit, minus 40 is the same. Um, and the sun was about 30% dimmer, so mm -hmm. that would make Mars even colder in the past. So how do you generate or how do you account for the fact that Mars had – this larger atmosphere with more water, where did it all go? Yeah. And so uh, or using MAVEN, they've looked around and found uh, that how much is disappearing, but other instruments, they've been able to measure the amount of carbonates in the some exposed places, like you know, in, the, in those craters there where the surface has been removed and you kind of see down. You can look at all that, and it turns out, lo and behold, it's actually not too hard to account for the fact that there's enough carbonates in Mars that you could easily get three, four, five bars worth of mm. atmosphere that would allow there to be a, an atmosphere where liquid water could exist. And uh, though Mars has lost a lot of its water to the atmosphere or to space, there's quite a bit in the underground where it's ground underground water and it's been frozen into the poles and they could actually get the roughly uh, 500, you know, two to 500 meters of water. It's global equivalent liquid or layer of how thick that would be if it were distributed over the entire planet evenly. It'd need to be about 200 meters deep to account for the observations. And, mm -hmm. and it seems like there's reserves in the places where we can estimate it or measure it that would give that amount of water. And again, just for scale to compare, if you took all the oceans on the Earth and spread them out evenly, they'd be about two kilometers deep. Okay. So Earth has an abundance of water compared to Mars, but what we can do is extrapolate back and say, given what we know, what we measure today, it's reasonable to say that, yeah, there was a large enough atmosphere and enough water mm -hmm. to account for these liquid features that we see that they're actually carved by liquid water, probably not by mm -hmm. some other process. But what all this research has shown is that though Mars, if we found it around another star, we would likely say it's in the habitable zone. Mm -hmm. We find evidence that Mars had a lot of liquid water in the past, but there's a very different history to Mars than there was to Earth, whereas mm -hmm. Earth has maintained its liquid water, largely stayed in the habitable zone, in a habitable temperature so that liquid water exists. Mars probably started that way, but very quickly went off catastrophically in terms of its capacity to support life has just disappeared. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason for that is that Mars's dynamo likely stopped for better than 4 billion years ago. And so this these sorts of studies give, along with all the other data, give us insight into what's going on inside the surface of, or in, in the interior. And if you go to the next slide, this is a comparison of Earth, Mars, and the Moon in terms of what the interior looks like. And what you see there on the Earth is you've got this crust on the outside, there's an upper mantle, and there's all of these interesting layers where there are transitions that happen. And this is all critical to the way plate tectonics behaves on the Earth. You've got the, the large mantle, you get down into the core, there's a liquid outer core and a solid inner core. And the what's going on when that inner core solidifies, it actually re releases heat and that drives this dynamo that creates a magnetic field around the Earth. Mm -hmm. Why that's important, as the solar wind is coming out, the Earth's magnetic field deflects that solar wind away from the Earth and protects Earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Mars, if you look at the interior of its planet, 
has a crust, uh, but a large mantle. None of the interesting layering up on the top. All of that is down below the mantle, in between mm. the mantle and the core. And there's no, the core is just not large enough to have that solid interior part. And so there's no dynamo. Mm -hmm. So four billion years ago, when Mars's dynamo ceased, the sun's UV rays coming in will break up molecules, send the hydrogen out into space. The lighter mass of Mars means all of these molecules are gone. And so all of the things that life requires, the carbon, the, the oxygen, the carbon dioxide, the water, have just disappeared from Mars. Mm -hmm. Whereas Earth has this, not only is it the right distance from the sun, it's the right size, it's got the right composition, it's got, mm -hmm. it's maintained all of what it needs so that Four billion years later, Earth is thriving with life and hosting a diverse and abundant array of life in this very rich mineral structure. Mars didn't. Its dynamo ceased. Its water disappeared. Carbon atmosphere has been dissipated off into space, and it's just a really uninhabitable environment. And it really points to, though it looks, though we would characterize it as being in the habitable zone. It's not habitable, and we right. see why it's not habitable. And as we see why it's not habitable, it just shows us all the reasons why Earth is habitable. And it gives us caution when they're out there saying, oh, we found the latest habitable planet. Recognize that we have three planets in our solar system that we would characterize as being in the habitable zone. Only one of those has any life on it, and the other two are catastrophically Hostile Mars, Mars and Venus would yeah. be the other two. And both of them look like, in principle, they should be habitable, but we see all of mm. these other factors that come into play in that. And so mm. that's that's kind of really the takeaway. Earth mm. seems designed to support life. Yeah. And we've got Mars and Venus as two examples that say, though they started off very similarly to Earth, their any potential habitability they have sure. disappeared very early yeah. in their history. Had the... And, and this may be an unfair question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Have, has the MAVEN uh, experiment detected organics on Mars? Has it? In, and then there was also a discussion at one point about there being high levels of peroxides in the soil that would have been creating a, a highly oxidative environment that likely would break down organics and, of course, make it inhospitable to life. I have not heard any evidence that MAVEN has discovered organics. That would seem to be a big enough discovery that I would have at least heard of that somewhere. So I, yeah. I think the answer to that first question is no. Um, I have heard that there's a very oxidizing environment, which is you know which would be reminiscent of the hydrogen perox or the, the peroxides. The challenge and how to think about that is you know okay we want to look at Mars today and say is it habitable? Well, no, it's not, and it's surface is very hostile right. to life. The question that most scientists, I think myself included, have is early on when mm -hmm. things were not so hostile, what did we see there? My suspicion is what we're going to find is that even as we look back in that region where Mars had plate tectonics, right now it's got one, one or maybe two right. plates that don't move next to each other. It has volcanic activity. It's just very different than it is here on Earth. It had water in the past. It had a, strong, or a more dense atmosphere in the past. Even when we look back in that region, I'm pretty sure what we're going to find is though it met some of that criteria and there's liquid water there, you're not going to find life. If for no other reason, then the complexity of life's origin is really hard to make happen. Maybe right. Earth's 
life was transported to Mars and that happened. But Mars has been pretty hostile. Even even though it's got water, I still think it's a pretty hostile environment. And so I don't expect we're going to find it, but this is the beauty of science. Let's go out and look and uh, let the chips fall where they may and see what's the best way to look at this once yeah. we understand how things work. Yeah. Greg, Jeff. Well, uh, I'll go ahead and, and uh, take the reins here, if that's okay. Please do. That's uh, I, It's a lot of fun to talk about Mars, so <laughs> thanks for bringing that discovery. That was really fascinating. Um, just, uh, I think you probably know this about me, but I, I'm a, I love Shakespeare, so I'm a huge Shakespeare buff. And, and for me— You're not that large, Fuzz, <laughs> just to be honest, so— you're not a huge Shakespeare book. Yeah, when you good. have to explain a joke, you know it's yeah, fallen. It's, <laughs> I, oh, I give it an A plus as a dad. All right, a great all right. Dad I'll, joke. I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> but but it, one of the the highlights of my life it was to go to the the Globe Theater in London. Been oh, there cool. three times uh, to see Shakespeare performed. So this is the outside. That's the inside. It's not the original Globe Theater that was burned in the fire of London. So this is a reconstructed globe, but it's built to to look precisely like the the original Globe Theater. So a lot of fun uh, to see plays there. And I, I, I saw The Tempest, I saw Othello, and I saw Hamlet. So that's like seeing the Super Bowl. All to right. see Hamlet at the Globe <laughs> is like the Super Bowl for Shakespeare. And I, I love the tragedies that Shakespeare wrote. But there's one play that I just never really connected with, and that's Romeo and Juliet. All right. I don't know. I mean— why that is, but of course, I think people are familiar with the story. You, you know, it's it's a forbidden love, Romeo and Juliet. They're, they're, the Montagues and the uh, Capulets are at, at rivals, and there's a <laughs> you know a, a war between those two families, and they each belong to the, the two families, and they fall in love, you know, and, and they end up dying, and it's their death that brings the, the two families together and reckon. Causing really? them to reconcile. Yeah. I, so I have not read enough of that. And that's not the way West Side Story <laughs> ends. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, and, and that, in fact, you know, one of my favorite uh, lines from Shakespeare actually comes from Romeo and Juliet, even though I don't care for the play. And that is, you know, uh, what is in a name? And he, that which we call a rose would smell as sweet uh, by any other name. So love that. Love that line. But the discovery that I want to talk about has to do with what you might call forbidden love. Uh, in in the animal kingdom, and that's between polar bears and brown bears. <laughs> All right, <laughs> but actually, the, these two bears are distinct species. They're they're very different from each other. Uh, the the pop the 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 genetic diversity in polar bear populations is very limited, whereas in brown bears they have an extensive genetic diversity. Uh, polar bears live in a very narrow uh, habitat habitat habitat, they very restricted habitat, which is the ice flows in the mm. Arctic. Right. And they only eat sea mammals. Whereas brown bears probably have one of the greatest biogeographical distributions on the planet for any mammal. They're found in all kinds of locations, all kinds of diverse environments. And their diet is highly varied. They they'll go you'll have brown bears that are exclusively vegetarian and those that will eat different types of meat. So very um very different types of, of, of bears, two different species. But do so you said that the genetic diversity of the polar bears is much smaller, the genetic diversity of the brown bears is much larger. Is the polar bears a small segment of the brown bear or are they distinct as well? No, they're actually distinct species. 
Yeah, it, it, I know they're distinct species. Are they? Are there genetics? Just, is yes. that the same thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. So you can you can clearly tell that this is a characteristic genome of a polar bear. This okay. is a characteristic genome of a brown bear. All right. Right. But you know, the, these bears, even though they're they're different species, are known to hybridize. So, for example, in today, in brown bears found in Ireland, have about twenty percent of their genome that has come from a recent intergression or hybridization event with a with polar bears. Okay. Uh, uh, in Alaska, uh, from ancient DNA, there is data that indicates that the particular population of brown bears in Alaska has about 10% of its genome that comes came from, a again, a hybridization event about 15,000 years ago between that brown bear population and polar bears. So they're, they're known to hybridize, and, and it's, it's, it's fairly commonplace. Uh, but the paper that I want to talk about is the, based on, um, is published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, uh, and it's uh, by a team of researchers that discovered evidence for an ancient hybridization or an ancient intergression event about 100,000 years ago uh, with brown bears and polar bears. And this event actually is has shaped the brown bear genome for all the extant brown bears alive today. And the ancient DNA was taken from this particular fossil. This was uh, a, this is part of a polar bear skull that was discovered in Alaska that dates somewhere between 70 and about 110,000 years in age. And they nicknamed this particular polar bear specimen Bruno, which is interesting, as we'll find out in a minute about the nickname. But this is where the, the particular fossil was found uh, in the, the northern part of, of Alaska. But when they, uh, they were able to isolate from one of the teeth uh, a ancient DNA and were able to create a high-quality genome for Bruno from both the, the nuclear genome and the mitochondrial genome. And when they, uh, and they discovered, by the way, that Bruno was a woman, it was a female bear, not a, a male bear through that process. Okay, right. So the, the nickname doesn't apply. Uh, but what they ended up discovering is this, that, that Bruno is clearly a polar bear. It has the distinct genetic signature of a polar bear. It's just that its genetic diversity is unique compared to polar bears alive today. So this would have been, Bruno would have been part of a polar bear population whose genetic fingerprint is lost from from modern day polar bears. So it's just a, a group that that just disappeared that went extinct. All right. Um, and it, but it turns out that when they look at the the, the genome of Bruno. It looks as if that Bruno belonged to a population of polar bears that interbred or hybridized with a brown bear population that was contemporary with it uh, and contributed significant amount of genetic material to that brown bear population. As it turns out that that brown bear population is ancestral to all the brown bears that are, that are in existence today. So that's the ancestral population to all brown bears alive today, and that today 10% of the brown bear genome came from that intergression event, from that, that hybridization event that took place. So the scenario would be somewhere, some region, there were polar bear, brown bear population, fairly significant amount of hybridization, and then from that, that group has spread right. over and either... Right. 
their genetic signatures kind of washed out or you know, dominated whatever's right. left, or that right. was would that be the the event where brown bears, polar bears started and spread out and populated the earth? No, I mean you would have already had brown bears and polar bears from an evolutionary perspective. They would have diverged from each other from a common ancestor about 500,000 years ago. So okay. this event would have been 100,000 years ago approximately. And so, th- again, the idea is that there would have been a polar bear population that interbred with brown bears. It must have been, at that point, brown bears must have had a limited distribution on the planet. Okay. And that population became, again, the ancestral population to all the brown bears alive today. Okay, so it's not the start of bears. It's the start of the brown bear population, if you will. Yes. Okay, yeah. all right. Okay. Well, and there would have been brown bears before that. It's just that that, inter- that, that event in, in the brown bear natural history ended up shaping its modern-day genome. Okay. So that 10% of the brown bear genome came from that intergression event. But we would never have known that because uh, because until we did sequenced uh, Bruno's genome, it would have been completely hidden from right. us. Okay. Because you needed – because all the brown bears today have that signature, and people just would have assumed that was intrinsic to the brown bear genome. Okay. Right. So finding the polar bear right. that had that brown bear – or that right. brown bear sig- – or Finding the polar bear population that you now see in the brown bear, that's what tells you there's this hybridization. Yes, event. exactly, okay. exactly. So, so you know, this, you know, first of all demonstrates just really the power of um, the power of ancient DNA analysis because it, it gives us un- an understanding into the polar bear natural history and the brown bear natural history, you know, that um, we wouldn't ever otherwise have. Now, what's interesting is every time polar bears – uh, hybridize with brown bears, the flow of genetic information always goes from polar bears to brown bears. It never goes the other way. In other words, and, and, and there's a one possible explanation is because polar bears have such a specialized lifestyle, they live in such a very narrow ra- habitat range, they have very limited genetic diversity, that, that they're so optimized for their environment and lifestyle that any kind of uh, foreign or external genetic input into that population is going to be weeded out by natural selection because it probably is going to make whoever receives that genetic material less fit. Okay. Now, brown bears, on the other hand, have such an extensive genetic diversity, live such diverse lifestyles, you know, uh, live in such diverse habitats that that brown bear population can tolerate the introgression of new genetic material into it. And in fact, they believe that the time frame where this intergression happened was at a time frame where there was climactic change, climactic instability, which would probably would have caused brown bear and polar bear habitat ranges to overlap. To collide, okay. Right. And so they thought the thought is that this, this intergression event actually helped the brown bears to survive that period of climate change. Okay. And, and so that this was a, a means to, that allowed them to adapt. To, to, you know, a changing climactic environment. And so the people that discovered this are speculating that as we're entering into a time of climate change, that this kind of intergression may become very commonplace and very important for the survival of, of different species, that particularly those species that are closely related to each other, that this mm-hmm. is a way to help exchange and introduce genetic material into the population to, to accelerate adaptation. And, and so in, interesting, you know, interesting study that 
not only gives insight into the natural history of, of brown bears and polar bears, but really gives us some understanding as to how maybe animals might adapt uh, to, to climate change, you know, and, and, and it introduces another mechanism that allows for adaptation in, in, uh, in organisms. So the, your comment there at the end kind of reminds me of one of the displays that I, you know, I've been up to Yellowstone a few times and I, I've, I'm old enough to remember at least uh, the discussion on TV about the massive fire that destroyed Yellowstone. And right. interestingly, I've not been to Yellowstone until probably 15, 20, 30 years, or well, probably 20 years after that. And Yellowstone is just gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, you know, the geological features are cool. But if I had not seen the display, I would have never known there was a massive fire here. Yeah. And part of what I found fascinating uh, was this discover or the idea that there are pine cones that it actually takes the heat of a fire for them to open up. Yeah. This strikes me as a similar kind of adaptive mechanism. Right. That, you know, I, I'm not saying evolution can't produce that, but it strikes me as an ingenious mechanism of there are these catastrophic right. events, but things survive and thrive even in it. Right. it this strikes me in that same class of it, discovery. It, it does. And, and you know, the, the main point that I want to make from this from an apologetic standpoint is that so often when people see studies like this, this is just considered prima facie evidence that that life has an evolutionary history. But to your point, from somebody who holds to a creation model perspective or an ID perspective, I see this as, as part of the means by which God creates species that are robust enough to survive right. in an ever-changing world, right? And, and so, you know, Darwin's mechanism for, you know, the origin of species was natural selection, where there's heritable genetic variation that's operated on by some kind of you know, quote unquote, selective pressure, environmental challenges, predatory challenges, what have you. Uh, and then later on, he expanded it to sexual selection, where it, it's not only survival of the fittest, but the survival of the most attractive, right? right. Whatever, what, <laughs> right, you know. Uh, and, and so these are considered to be mechanisms that can explain speciation. You know, now, from a, as again, as somebody who holds to a creation model perspective, I would say, well, I see this as part of God's providence, yes. right? That, you know, a companion concept to the idea of God as creator is God is the, is the providential, the person or the being that providentially cares for the world that he's made. And part of that providential care is through the, the natural processes that he's instituted. And so oftentimes when we think about God's providence in those terms, we might think of the water cycle or the, 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 you know, the nutrient cycle, things like that. But, you know, I think, you know, the capacity for organisms to adapt through microevolution and speciation could also be understood as part of God's providential care. And what, when it comes to natural selection, you know, the, the, the genetic variation can either be standing variation that just simply reflects the, the distribution of alleles in the population, and an allele is just a version of a gene. And okay. so, you know, as, as there's environmental pressures, the allele frequencies will change, allowing that organism or the population to be more or less fit for that the particular right, yes. environmental scenario. Another mechanism would be 
mutations that introduce new alleles into the population that might be of some benefit. That mechanism to introduce genetic variation in a population is much slower than varying standing allelic frequencies. Um, but introgression now is another mechanism that could contribute to that ability to adapt where instead of it, it's a very rapid way of introducing a lot of genetic variation across the entire genome, you know, that then gives that population a whole set of new alleles that could very well allow it to adapt to a very rapidly changing right. environment. So I see this as, as part of God's providential care. But to pull that off, you have to have modular designs in the genome where things right. can, can swap back and forth. So I see this as fully compatible with, with a creation model view. I don't see this as any way uh, uh, obviating creation at the expense or, obvi or ad advancing evolution at the expense of creation. Uh, fascinating discovery. I was wondering how we were going to get to the apologetic value of brown bears and polar bears <laughs> interacting with one another. <laughs> it's a pretty fascinating discovery. Thanks for this. Yeah. Well, one other quick point, and, and that is just because you accept the idea of microevolution and speciation doesn't obligate you to ex accept right. the totality of the evolutionary paradigm, right? And, and, I, and I, when it comes to the generation of biological novelty, biological innovation, uh, certain key events in life's history, current evolutionary theory struggles to account for, for key transitions in life's history and for the origin of novelty. And just real quickly, and then we'll bring it all to a close, um, there are a number of evolutionary biologists that are calling for uh, what they call the extended evolutionary synthesis, where they are right. arguing that current evolutionary theory is incomplete and it's not capable of explaining certain events in life's history, and that we have to bring in other mechanisms beyond natural selection, you know, and sexual selection into the mix in order to explain, again, key transitions in life's history and the origin of biological novelty. And, and one of those, or two of those scientists that are in that camp are uh, Doug Irwin and Jim Valentine, who are world's experts on the origin of of body plans in animals. And their point in this textbook that they wrote is that the mechanisms that we have that explain speciation will not explain the Cambrian explosion. And so that there really is a distinction between macroevolution and spe in speciation and microevolution. And so they just say this, one important concern has been whether the microevolutionary patterns commonly studied in modern organisms by evolutionary biologists are sufficient to understand and explain the events of the Cambrian or whether evolutionary theory needs to be expanded to include a more diverse set of macroevolutionary processes. We strongly hold to the latter position, the move from micro to macro forms a discontinuity. So the whole point here is that you can be within the scientific mainstream and, and accept adaptation right and also be in the scientific mainstream and express skepticism about the ability of current evolutionary theory to, again, explain the origin of major groups, the you know, key right. transitions in life's history, that it's being skeptical about, about the, the current capacity of evolutionary ex theory to explain the totality of biology is not outside of the scientific mainstream, right? So that's yeah. a, an important point. Well, and one thing this... Uh 
your discussion, your, this last point raise, brings up to me is I remember back when I was in high school, somewhere in there, I remember that's about the time that Stephen Jay Gould was talking and it was the, the punctuated equilibrium yeah. idea and, you know, had a chance to hear him discuss that and, you know, was honestly as a high school student not aware of how big a deal this was. But I remember having a discussion about that, hearing and understanding what he's saying and as I was looking back on it later and thinking, it's like, okay, he's describing this in evolutionary terms as a mechanism, but what he's saying looks a lot like creation. Yes, exactly. And, you know, we've got, okay, uh, natural selection and, you know, what were the two things there, you know, two, two sets of tools that you, yeah, you yeah. listed Sexual there. Sexual selection, genetic yeah. drift. There's, so yeah. there's got to be new mechanisms in there. I would be curious to know if the new mechanisms, especially where you're looking at these places which look like God's intervention, have that kind of, oh, it's just random processes, if you will, yeah. or does it have that signature like we see in astronomy where it's like, how do you get this structure? Oh, it looks like a specific event or a well-designed event. Yeah. My suspicion is as we continue to go, it will look more and more like the creative, the, the yeah. creation stories. So. Well, you know, I mean, towards that end, I mean, every time you see significant biological innovation, it seems to happen explosively in the fossil record. Okay. You know, when you look at the key transitions in life's history, they seem to happen explosively. So the origin of life seems to happen abruptly. You have what's called the eukaryotic Big Bang, where you first see mm -hmm. eukaryotic cells, the Cambrian explosion. You know, there's all these radiation events you know, when you yes. look at animal history. So, you know, to your point, even when it comes to the origin of, you know, human uniqueness, there's, there's seems to be this big bang that happens there as well. So, you know, it looks a lot like a creation event. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. All right, well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, great discovery uh, and great discussion about Mars, and hopefully people enjoyed this discussion about polar bear and brown bear hybridization. I just want to say thanks to all of you for watching today's episode of Star Cells and God. If you want to, please join the discussion in the comment section below. Let us know what you think about the podcast, your thoughts on these different topics. And remember to like the video and to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Set a reminder so you get notified when the next episode of Star Cells and God releases, usually on, every, on Thursday. And then also let people know about this podcast, share it with your, your friends and loved ones and those people who you think would benefit from hearing this conversation. And I'm just going to leave you with a, a final thought. The more that we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe. Mm -hmm.